Welcome to the Deep Calm. Reflections on Door to Talk. My name is Adam Jacobs, and uh, Door to Talk is a book available on Amazon. And I'm walking the dog at the moment. Which is very pleasant. So it means the backing track for this podcast is life, really. There's cars driving by and people chatting. I hope it uh, has a calming effect on you. It's certainly having a calming effect on me. And that's significant because today I'd like to explain the term deep calm and where it came from. So hopefully you're relaxed. You might be listening to this as you go to sleep. And that would be nice. My mum had an experience and she described it as a, as a deep calm. And I thought at the, at the time that she had more or less put the head of the hammer right on the nail, as they say. Sometimes people describe feeling that they have, and it needs no elaboration. And based upon the conversations that I had had with her up to that point. It was very clear what she meant. So you can imagine it was was rewarding that she should feel this peace And I told her, you are experiencing something that is close to your true nature. Or maybe it's a glimpse of your true nature. And I asked her, do you feel that this feeling of calm is sustainable 
I don't know if she had an answer for that question at that time. But the question really is, do you wish it was sustainable? How are you going? <laughs> Hello. So of course, she wishes it was sustainable. Does she honestly believe that it is sustainable? Well, that needs consideration. And is a more complicated question in many ways. So then of course, you know, if we have experienced the deep calm, which I suppose to give it uh, some context or some clarification. People, other people have referred to it as awareness or enlightenment. Uh, an experience of consciousness fundamental to the universe which are all effective terms. But I love a deep calm because it's it describes the actual experience. Of course. Oh, it's a big dog. So, if she can recreate the circumstances that brought about this deep calm, then maybe it's sustainable. Maybe it can become the defining characteristic of her, of her existence. It seems reasonable. The deep calm came about for my mother in that moment because she had just experienced the breakup of a relationship. And so, I guess, the news is bad. We can't be relying on breakups and traumatic events in our lives to be delivering a deep calm experience in any sort of sustainable way. In fact, it should be that with an awareness of the deep calm comes a freedom that means we're no longer endure or experience 
the trauma of life. Quite so harshly. So, it becomes a contradiction in many ways. The deep calm is blissful and should be the sort of the background experience of life essentially. But we don't want to be relying on trauma for us to achieve it. Hmm, what to do? Well, first, we need to have a, a greater understanding of what, of why it is that trauma has this ability to reset our awareness. And it's in that resetting phase, or if we, if we need another term, we could say in the rebooting phase, that there's a sort of absence of self that then allows for a, a revelation of sorts. Now, they all sound like spiritual terms, but I'm really making use of these terms in a, in a very practical way. When I say revelation, I mean to reveal something quite literally. Many people will experience a, a momentary sense of absence. Maybe they might have the wherewithal, as they say, to describe it as a deep calm when they experience trauma. A deep calm sort of has a positive connotation and Many people are not comfortable associating with a traumatic event. But many of us, you know, when we've received bad news or something shocking, like for instance, we've, we witnessed on the, t the television that some, some natural disaster. We have a sense that it takes our breath away. And this is a, in many ways, it, it is the experience of hitting the reset button. Whenever we have that, that sense of disbelief emerge, and it, it does come to us very much in a, in a physical way, like our breath, 
have a sense that our, takes our breath away. We have a sense that our, we sort of get the goose pimples type of thing. There is something very real happening in terms of resetting. And the resetting, what's being reset is self. So now we're getting closer to it. So the deep calm is sustainable if we're in a constant cycle of resetting self. Well, no. That is unsustainable. The unsustainable aspect of it is the, is the shunting of self aside as a consequence of being shocked. Clearly not a way to live one's life. So this is when we take a moment and we can look at how it is that we manifest an understanding of self. And we use it by using, and we achieve it by using phrases such as myself or yourself or itself. Myself. Is a, is a phrase that is the key that unlocks everything, essentially. It's beautiful in its simplicity. Um, the cornerstone of any meaningful revelation begins by asking, what is the my in that word? And what is the self? Why is it that we refer to self as something that I possess? My, me, I possess this thing called self, my self. Many of us get to the point where we, we accept that self is all that we are. That there is nothing else beyond our sense of self. And in this way, instead of saying, I am well, I'm going to the shops, I am Mary's husband, it should be Self as well. Self is going to the shops. Self is Mary's husband. And there should be a clear swap, you know, of a very easy exchange. Replace 
I with self. And then there is nothing except for self. But we all feel in, intrinsically or because of our education or experience in life, whatever it might be, that to use the word self in that way feels like we're referring to something intrinsic to us, something that is central to us. In the third person, there is still this sort of middle entity, middle man, so to speak, that exists in the explanation, in the, in the phraseology. It can't be ignored and it's, and it's fair enough. It's, it's a revelation in itself. There is a my, a me, an I, and there is a self. It's inbuilt in our lexicon, as they say, and it's built in to our sense of it, to our feeling of it. So, we can recap, we can say that the deep calm comes about when self moves aside and the I, the my, the me in the phrase myself. is revealed and in many ways it's very logical we have an answer for ourselves I think there within that explanation if we can find a way to to uh, we can sustain the moving aside of self, then we can live in a state where our true nature, or whatever the thing is that we call I, is revealed. Okay, problem solved. Not entirely. Because then the question presents itself very, very quickly soon after this revelation. What is the I? I need to have a sense of the I. So that I can... sustain the sense of it because one thing that could be said 
about the deep calm and I'm, as I say this I'm walking walking by the river one thing that can be said for the deep calm is its inability to be defined and this is where Taoism and Zen spiritual understandings become present. And appear to add complication, <laughs> which is annoying. Necessarily challenging, I should say. At the beginning of this revelation process, we can be left with the feeling if I define the deep calm as a, as a bounded thing with dimension and definition, then I can go to that place. I can experience that thing. So let me let me itemize it. And the first thing that you discover when you begin this spiritual journey is that any attempt to define it is a, is a step away from it. So then what do we do? Well, we need to ask ourselves, what is it about me that's pursuing the objectifying, the itemizing, the defining of the deep calm? And why must it do it? Well, if we turn our, our attention back to the phrase myself, the word myself we have the my something that we refer to as I or me that owns this thing called self the I very really needs anything whenever we refer to I if it's not in terms of myself or ourselves 
for example, I is really a substitute for self. In whenever we, for instance, explaining what we're telling the story of the type of day we had. You know, I went here, I went there. It's, we tell that story with, with an image of ourselves in mind. And we're not referring to the, to the revealed I, so to speak. So we have to remember there's these two entities. One of them is formless and is observing this thing it's created called self. That's the my, that's the me, that's the I. And self is out there putting together all the bricks and objects and items of life. It is self that arranges the world into separate objects and items. How is it that self does that? Well, it's a question for, for another time. And, and doesn't really matter for the purposes of understanding the deep calm, which is good. <laughs> it is self that objectifies. It will desperately do this. Self possesses the task of objectifying the world obsessively. So it will want to define the deep current. I'm now going under a bridge and it's got this lovely percussive quality as the cows as the cows as the cows go over it. It's fantastic. It's beautiful. Like a uh, Brain that's not too sure of itself. <laughs> and so, how do we stop self trying to objectify this deep calm feeling we have? Because as soon as it does that, as soon as it tries to define it, we lose our sense of it. Essentially, we must resist the urge to pursue this deep, calm feeling. Arguably, it's something that 
many people struggle with and but are still keen to they're still keen to feel the deep calm and they can subject themselves to to a sort of ongoing cycle of trauma in an attempt to be in this uh, absent state in a way they sort of wallow in misery because of one aspect of that misery is a kind of freedom so if you think about what I was saying at the beginning is sustaining this deep calm feeling by perpetually being subject to trauma So there is nothing to pursue, there's nothing to objectify. So that's why, especially in Zen and Taoist teachings, there's no description given of what or who is the deep calm. In a way, it's like what makes the deep calm endlessly deep? What makes it endlessly calm is the fact that it's not defined. So instead, we put aside our desire to pursue something and we turn our attention to the to the defining and wrangling of the thing we can define which is self So when my mother experienced her trauma, the end of a relationship, she wasn't expecting the relationship to end. The, the relationship had been challenging in some ways. It was, it was a sort of a long distance relationship in many ways. When she experienced the end of it, her sense of self as partly informed by her relationship with this person ceased to exist. That self that she had 
created had was created circumstantially that self that had been created with this other person as part of its character ceased to exist in other words it was pushed aside to reveal something else the I, the my, the me in that word myself became the well appeared to replace the sense of self it didn't replace anything it was always there this deep calm self moved aside so to speak doing my best to describe something that's I'm trying to be literal about something that's not necessarily literal the self moved aside to reveal her essential I, the essential me, the essential my that is always there so how do we move self aside without the blunt hammer force of trauma to shunt it into a reboot or reset phase. We talk to it. And it is something that we do all the time. I can't believe myself. I'm not happy with myself. Why did I do that? In that statement, why did I do that? The I is self in that sentence, as I explained before. The I in that sentence is not this essential you that I'm referring to. So we do it all the time. <coughs> Myself. Why did I do that? Or more accurately, that sentence should be, why did myself do that? Self seeks to objectify the world because there are very powerful forms in the world that will do the being that you are, the physical thing that you are, considerable harm. So self has the job of protecting 
that physical being you are that's its job and to make sure it goes on and has has babies and and makes more physical beings you know that's consistent with evolution it's not rocket science the self is a protection tool and it will arise in your awareness in response to its job to protect one of the main things it does to protect you is to ensure that you're socially effective if you say something that embarrasses that's embarrassing or is misplaced or you know you blush itself is saying whoa stop you know you've just said something that other people kind of aren't too sure about this is not good for you socially then you blush and you hesitate and you make your excuses you apologize What if you're in that moment, and maybe a good example to use, for whatever reason you've been in conversation, maybe with some new acquaintances, and you've said something that's mildly inappropriate, and you get a sense of it, and you suddenly you're, you're blushing and you're embarrassed. At that moment, what if you said, thank you. You simply said thank you to that something that you've created. The my says thank you to self. Again, referring to that word myself. I say thank you to self for doing its job what if in that moment instead of trying to backpedal and apologize you take a breath and say maybe you could say I didn't think that through before I said it I'm sorry sure you could say something like that but quietly to yourself you say Thank you, self, for, for doing your job. Thank you. A simple thank you. Quietly to your self. If you start this habit, not only will you feel the, that background sense of deep calm, becoming more present but you'll also begin to understand just how sensitive self is and how oversensitive it can be or how hypersensitive it can be and you'll begin being less harsh in terms of your judgment 
of the essential you. So you say to self, thank you. And there'll be this moment where you have some clarity around just how necessary it was for self to be to be embarrassed for it to to cause cause the blushing you know this moment momentarily momentary clarity that whereby you can look at the word choices that you made and have a more realistic understanding of whether it was was offensive whether it was inappropriate and then you'll begin to feel how it is that your self is tuned in terms of its sensitivity and I will absolutely guarantee 100% that your self is hypersensitive that it is determined it is determined to overreact and we all have a sense of this a judgment feeling that emerges when we make some small error socially and that's when we begin this strange conversation with ourselves where we go why am i being so hard on myself just think about that saying why it is why is it that i I'm so angry with myself. Why is it that I uh, am so... Uh, I'm, it's such a hair-trigger response that I have to, to, that, to that topic or whatever it is that you overreacted to. You think about any one of those phrases as conversations you might have with yourself. There is always the I. And then there is the self. And we do it instinctively. So the deep calm is sustainable. If we can take a moment, get a sense of when self is essentially just doing its job and typically doing its job in a hypersensitive way. The deep calm is revealed when self is acknowledged and has the chance to recede and be poised and to learn something so that the next time it's a little less hypersensitive. It's a little less unsure socially. It's a little more confident socially and therefore is not inclined to say those inappropriate things or the clumsy things 
that you get angry with yourself for. The next time self feels empowered because it's acknowledged and it is thanked. In this way, whenever self does something that is blatantly damaging and harmful to the being that you are, the essential being that you are, remember that it's learnt to do that. The lesson was poorly conceived and circumstantial and probably happened during childhood, but it still learnt it. So you say thank you to it, even in those moments. You say thank you and you begin the process of teaching it alternatives, other ways of operating. But it always begins with thank you. It is a very backwards way of kind of looking at it. It's not our experience. Our experience or our feeling is to get angry with self and to, to be critical of this uh, sense of who we are. No, don't do that. It's just doing a job that it's been taught to do it's learned some things that are wrong, but it only knows what it knows. It's happy to learn other things if it's acknowledged and not rejected or abused. So you say in the first instance, thank you self for doing a job, or just a simple thank you. A simple thank you. In many ways, the self that we developed is kind of like a caveman, is responding, overreacting to, to threats, threats that it thinks are genuinely life-threatening or life-compromising. So we just say thank you. And this is conversations that I have with my, with my mother now. You know, she's, had a, she's had an experience of the deep calm. So then I say to her, well, those other moments, say you, you feel lonely. Well, the being that you are isn't concerned about concepts of loneliness. It's not... It's not a factor in its manifestation. So the thing that feels lonely is self. And in those moments you say, thank you self for doing what you need to do for my, to ensure my social effectiveness. And self recedes, it feels acknowledged. When she goes out into the world, she's not hesitant about contact, making contact with people. And now she's got friends who want to do things with her every other day. 
It's all very fascinating. Thanks for listening.